This episode is sponsored by Hire.com. Hire.com is offering a new freelancing and contracting offering. They have multiple companies that will provide you with contract opportunities. They cover all the tracking, reporting, and billing for you. They handle all the collections and pre-fund your paycheck. They offer legal and accounting and tax support. And they'll give you $2,000 when you've been on a contract for 90 days. But with this link, they'll double it to $4,000 instead. Go sign up at Hire.com slash freelancershow. This episode is sponsored by Elixir Sips. Elixir Sips is a screencast series that will take you from Elixir newbie to experienced practitioner. If you're interested in learning Elixir but don't know where to start, then Elixir Sips is perfect for you. In two short screencasts each week between 5 and 15 minutes, Elixir Sips currently consists of over 16 hours of densely packed videos in more than 100 episodes, and there are more every week. Elixir Sips is brought to you by Josh Adams, expert Rubyist and CTO of a software development consultancy, Isotope 11. Elixir Sips. Learn Elixir with a pro. Find out more at elixirsips.com. This episode is sponsored by Less Accounting. Let's face it, there are a lot of things about being an entrepreneur that we all hate. One of the things that I really hate is bookkeeping. Less Accounting has just started a new service where you can get your bookkeeping done for a really low cost each month. If you're interested, go to freelancershow.com slash bookkeeping to go check it out. Welcome to the Freelancer Show Q&A. This is the seventh time we've done this. We have a whole bunch of questions to answer. So uh, before we get started, though, I, I think what I want to do with this is just ask what you guys have been up to for the last month. Eric, you want to? Past month. What month is this? January? Uh, yes. <laughs> so January was last month. No, I mean, uh, a lot of client work with stuff. Um, I've been doing a lot of kind of rethinking my positioning, like what niche I want to work in. So I've had one, not false start, but I, one way I went in, talked to some potential customers about it, decided it wasn't really a, the greatest fit for both me and for them, changing it, doing different ideas. And the problem is that, you know, I start doing that and then you get busy doing client work and then you finish that up you have to start back up like the positioning stuff. And so the back and forth has been kind of hard and, you know, that's that's normal, nothing new to me. I've been doing a lot of that, uh, a lot of like networking with other freelancers and consultants recently. I uh, went to MicroConf, I don't know, two weeks ago, three weeks ago, something like that, um, which was just a ton of networking. Like, I'm still, like, connecting with people from that that we, you know, didn't get a chance to completely talk. Um, but that's basically what I have going on, mostly client work and kind of putting systems around different parts of my business I feel that isn't quite systemized enough or it's kind of, like, has a bit of an itch and an irritation for me. Gotcha. Uh, what about you, Ruben? Um, so I've been doing a bunch of things over the last month, I guess it was about a month ago, maybe a little more, that I told the um, training company that I'm working with that I'm going to go back to being independent, and that has just been only positive. Basically, I'm starting to make a name myself doing it independently, people are starting to come to me, um, all this advice we give about niching, and all this advice that we give about you know, putting yourself that you really want to focus on something, so I'm now focusing almost entirely on training, and I see the work is coming in, and I haven't even done most of the positioning I want to do. I haven't had a chance to update my website. I haven't had a chance to do any sort of advertising. Um, I still have some consulting projects that are going on. I've had a major one in the last month or two where we totally redid a, a website to make it responsive and bring it into the modern era. So it's, it's, it's been very good. I think my, my only disappointment in the last month is that I've had so many things that I've wanted to do um, in terms of switching over from Aweber to Drip and making that more smarter, in terms of redoing the website, in terms of getting out a little more in terms of products. But overall, I feel like, you know, everyone, you know, a few more millimeters of progress. Very cool. So, yeah, I've, I've kind of uh, been in the same place that Eric's been in as far as going to microconf and stuff. Um, I have, I've actually been at conferences the last two weeks. Um, I was at microconf, and then I was at uh, New Media Expo, which was in Las Vegas at the same time. Um, but it went two days longer, so I spent two days there. And then uh, last week I was at RailsConf, and I was I, I gave a talk there. And, uh, yeah, I've just been working on Rails clips and then trying to keep my client happy. So I think that's pretty well where I'm at. Any questions that you guys have or anything you want to talk about before we jump into questions? Nothing I can think of offhand yet. Yeah, same um, for me. Like, I, I have a lot of positioning questions, but nothing definite. More of, like, you know, the meta question of what do I want to do when I grow up. <laughs> don't grow up. It's not worth it. <laughs> I, I actually read something, I don't know, I think it was this piece in the New York Times a year or two ago that I just saw again recently 
where someone was sort of reflecting on having turned 40, and she was like, you know, when you turn 40, like before that, you sort of figure, oh, when I'll be a grown-up, then I'll have all the answers, right? And then you get to 40, you're like, oh, my God, no one knows what they're doing. Everyone's winging it. <laughs> <laughs> yep. Yeah, it's like, what is it, a curve? It starts off, you're a baby, you don't know anything, become an adolescent teenager, and you know everything, and then it starts going downhill from there, and then by the time you're, you know, really old, it's like, you know you don't know anything at all, and you just gave up <laughs> at that point. Yeah. I know, I'll just, I'll just say something, like, uh, that I discovered that is sort of maybe useful advice. So, the training I've been doing has been with, uh, like, big companies. So, I mean, I'll even say, like, Cisco and HP and other big companies like that, where they typically have very, shall we say, strict payment policies in place. And not only strict, but really annoying and bureaucratic, and each company has its own sorts of idiosyncrasies. But I've found, much to my surprise, that if you're willing to work within their system, and if you can get someone there who's really nice to work with you, then you can actually sometimes bend the rules and bend the rules in your favor. So, not, I mean, you can get angry about the bureaucracy quite a bit, but you can also... Like, as long as you don't get angry with the company or with the people you're dealing with at the company, um, it can actually work out okay. And at the end of the day, they have an interest in working with you as much as you have one interest in working with them. Anyway, I've just been like, I was shocked a few days ago to receive emails from Cisco more or less saying, okay, well, we'll just pay you early. Is that okay with you? I, was like, <laughs> I, I, I think I can deal with that. You want to send me money before I do the work? Okay. Um, I had it from another company. They they were like, so we want you to do this course in May, but we want to put in the Q1 budget. Can we can we just send it to you like on March, you know, the end of March? And right, tw twist my arms, please. Mm -hmm. Nice. All right. Well, let's go ahead and do the questions. We did get a bunch of questions in the forum for the show. Before we do that, I got an email from somebody, and I promised that I'd ask their question. Um, I'm pretty sure I know what your answers are going to be, and I know what my answer is. But he asked about finding work on sites like Odesk or Elance, and he wanted to know what all of our take was on that. So if you gentlemen have an opinion on that, I'd love to hear it. The standard thing to tell people is stay away. Stay away forever because it's a commodity market, and people there are not looking for expertise. They're not looking for brilliance. They're not looking for consultants. They're looking to get a specific job done and get it done quickly and cheaply. And so it's a race to the bottom. And I would say that advice, I used to say, was um, mostly true. Right? I would say that for 80%, 90% of the clients there, that's true. But I actually found some good clients on Elance over the years. And I kept sort of holding out hope that maybe it would still be possible, maybe it's worth recommending to people on, on various bases. And now I have to join the naysayers for a variety of reasons. Number one, if it wasn't a race to the bottom before, it now. Number two, I think this is more important. The time, and when I finally reflected on it, the time that I spent trying to find those very, very few excellent clients were way better than my reputation, writing on my blog, writing on my newsletter, that maybe didn't give immediate uh, effects or give me immediate results, but the long-term uh, uh, results were much, much more positive. So the general rule, if you really need cash right away and you're willing to deal with much less, then probably not a bad way to go, but... I think it's a rare person who's going to have it as a worthwhile investment for long-term So I, I mostly agree with you, Reuven. My experience with Odesk is mostly actually hiring people as opposed to being hired on there. Oh. And the way that I shop on there is I actually go in and I look for people who have a high rating, and then I start looking at how much they cost. And if they have a high rating, they have a lot of hours logged, and it looks like they have experience doing what I need them to do, then I'll hire them and give them a shot. But if I'm going to Odesk, I'm looking for somebody that's low cost, that's not in the U.S. So that being said, if you're based in one of those economies, you can probably make a decent living on it. If you're not, if you're based in the U.S. or, you know, certain other countries where the cost of living is higher, then you're probably not going to make as much money doing that. And so you just have to weigh out what kind of clients you want to work for because, again, you know, you've got the clients that are then going to a marketplace and shopping, and so they're going to argue with you over money and hours, possibly, and you also are going to want to weigh out, again, you know, how much you're going to make versus being able to find people in whatever economy you know you want to work for and then doing things that way and so if you need work then you'll, you'll find it there 
but you may not get paid what you want or what you think you're worth. I say I used to kind of think the same way, like it was, you know, more of a lower cost. And you know, the few times I've hired people, have been, you know, cost has been one of the, I'd say one of the top three concerns. But I'll, we'll put it in the show notes. But there's a post on Copy Hackers by Danny Margulis, I want to say. Basically, he's a copywriter who works on Elance, and in what 12 months, he basically made six figures. And so he kind of walks through how to do it. I think the big gist is if you're going to go onto those sites and try to find work. You need to do it in a different way. Like you don't don't follow the rules on what everyone else is doing because then you look the same as everyone else. You mm-hmm. need to try to stand out. Big things he talked about was like you know having repeat clients and there's a thing on them where you can do like an invite only job. So it's an employer would make a job and then invite you know the top people in each category or people they work with to bid on it. So it's only you know it's just like kind of normal project work where it's like five or six people you know bidding on the project, not the four hundred thousand or whatever it is. I haven't actually went on Elance to find work. Like I said, I've hired some people on there, so I don't have direct experience. But yeah, if you could find a way to kind of position yourself differently on there, it could work. It could be, I would use it as an, another lead source. I wouldn't rely 100% on it. But yeah, it also depends if you're just starting out and need to build up a portfolio or need to build up some clients. Like that might be something you can jump right in versus you know three to six months of starting your marketing and attracting clients that way. I don't think I saw this guy before. I saw someone else who also managed to make a ton of money on Elance. And he also said, look, there are techniques you can use. But I'll see if I can remember where that, where that link was. And I think in all these cases, it sort of lends itself to what we're increasingly calling productized consulting. Right? If you can sort of put a box on what people are asking for, and if you can say, hey, I'm able to do that and do that well and do it for a fixed cost. And the fixed cost is low for you relative to what you're going to put into it. But high, you know, high value and low cost also to them, then you can probably get away with it. But you know, open end development projects, I think it's gonna be rare. Then again, look, one of my best clients is this big client with whom I just finished a big project, and they're now paying me quite a lot, me and my employee quite a lot every month. They start off on Elance, and they're looking for someone cheap and simple. And when I responded, they said, Well, we were really weren't thinking about someone like you at all, but let's talk. Again, I don't know if the investment is worth it, but you can make money from Elance. And by the way, of course, part of the you know thing that Elance is trying to stop you from doing is move away from there, right? So it's very typical you'll get one job, two jobs through there, and then move away from there. And this guy, I guess, is trying to demonstrate this as an outlier by saying, I'm going to keep using Elance for my leads uh, and my work so that people will see how amazing I am and how much money I've made. Yeah, yeah, you keep the, like, the reviews and testimonials in whatever marketplace it is, and that way it kind of reinforces itself versus taking it out and getting the extra, you know, whatever the cut is. I don't remember what the cut is. A lot. (laughs) It's like like 10%, 12%, if I remember correctly. Yeah, I know that Avdi found Mandy on Odesk, and now she's, you know, she's working directly for me. I'm not paying her through Odesk, so it is a good way also just to find clients just to get off the ground, so. Yeah, hiring people. I've definitely, I hired two designers over the last year from Elance. Very happy with them, and Chuck, I had a similar story to you. You know, high reviews, higher than average pay perhaps, but I was delighted with the results. Yep. Yeah, for that kind of stuff, I've been going more toward Fiverr.com, depending on what it is. If it's something that's kind of a, that can be packaged up, a lot of times there are inexpensive ways to get that done on Fiverr. You know, they'll kill for a positive review, so that's worked out nicely for me. (laughs) But yeah, for like web design and stuff, a lot of times I'll go to Odesk. I'll just straight bid them. I'll just say, look, I'll pay you this much to do it. And uh, that's worked out. But yeah. Anyway, I've got a whole list of questions here from the forum. Uh, these are all from the same person. I didn't get permission to share who it was. So I'm not going to. But uh, yeah, you can go join the, the Freelancers Forum if you go to freelancershow.com slash forum. Um, and then you can see the questions in there. And then, you know, we'll post a link to this video in there and then also, you know, chime in on a lot of this. But uh, I'm just going to start at the top. So the first question is, what sort of project slash scope documentation do you generate for clients to supply time slash budget estimates? Well, I assume that applies more to development jobs or only development jobs. And look, what I do with development jobs, I'll tell you also, part of the reason why I'm moving away from development toward training is that I can avoid these headaches almost entirely. It, it gets me out of the business of arguing with people what is and what is not in scope. But I'm still doing some projects. And so typically what I'll do is I'll, I'll say to them, I estimate based on what we've been discussing, it's going to be X and Y and Z, at least initially. Like these are the first few things. 
but we're going to have to talk regularly. We're going to have to, you know, have meetings and talk about user stories and go through a red line or whatever, and it's going to be a rolling thing. And they, I think one of the important things that I've learned to say over the last, say, year or two is to explain to people, this is going to cost you money, it is going to be expensive, and my job is to try to make it worthwhile, and so you have a high ROI. But, you know, if you want to do interesting, exciting things, it's, it's, it's going to cost. Mm -hmm. Yeah, typically what, what I wind up with is, as I talk to them, first off, I try and talk to most people over Skype, and the reason is is because I have call recorder installed and it'll automatically record the call so I can go back and review the call later. But then I can take that and I'll usually wind up with some kind of list of features that they want. And then, you know, I can put whatever notes I want on that from the call into that document. And then I start looking at it and I generally just I don't estimate time as much as I estimate complexity which sort of translates to time, but the reason I do that is because for the last year or so I've had uh, subcontractors that I can hand off some stuff to, depending on the complexity and the level of skill required. I have one guy that has been solid, and he's kind of a top-end developer, and then I've got another. I've, I've found various lower-end people who can do the, you know, the more uh, menial stuff, but it's stuff that keeps them interested in learning, so... Anyway, so then I can kind of break that out and say, okay, well, then I think it's going to cost about this much. Then what I do is I just go back to them. I also tend to try and ask the questions that Jonathan and some of the other people that we've talked to about value-based pricing uh, tell you to ask so that you can get an idea of what it's worth to them. And then I try and make the two numbers kind of line up neatly so that I can say, look, you're going to get you know a 10x or 100x ROI or whatever. And so I'm getting a reasonable fee for doing the work and they're getting a reasonable ROI for paying me to do it. And so, yeah, so I try and get those numbers to line up. If I can't get them to line up nicely, then I'll just look at them and say, look, you're not going to make a lot on this, but this is what it's going to cost me to do it. And some people take that and some people don't. But uh, if, you can, if you can definitely do the more value-based stuff, I really like that. But what they wind up with in the end is basically a list of features and an estimate on how long I think it's going to take and how much it's going to cost. And any notes, obviously, on those features that specify better than a one-sentence description. Do you do something different, Eric? Yeah, and it's kind of recent, maybe last, at least last three months, maybe last six months. But what I do now is basically give a client a choice. It's like we can either, A, take the hour for my intro call and use that to kind of go over the details of what you want. And then it's just kind of a rough understanding of that. And then my uh, statement of work will include that. And I'll you know type it up and kind of break it out a little bit more logically. Um, and that's for mostly really small projects or ones where the client's very clear on what they want. If they need more, like a recent client I'm working on, what I do is I have a paid road, paid road mapping service called a trail map where they pay. We have at least two phone conversations, maybe three or four, depending. I go through their documentation. If they have any, you know, if they have an existing application, if they have existing code or ideas, designs, whatever, um, I basically go through all that and put together, like, here's a rough project plan. Here's what you're wanting. Here's how I think you can get it done. Here's the components of that. And then I actually estimate out each component of, like, here's the low estimate. Here's the high estimate. Um, and then I also include, like, a confidence of, like, you know, I'm 80% sure that it's going to be within this range or I'm 40% sure because it's some wild feature that no one has ever done before. Put all that together, talk about other opportunities their project's going to have, any risks their project's going to have kind of give them a rough, like, here's a proposed schedule, like, dependency type of schedule. And at the end of it, they get this, you know, pretty meaty PDF report of all that, all the details, all the estimates. I give them kind of a, a summary estimate of, like, here's the low, here's the high, you know, rough idea of what technology to use and deliver that to them and then have a conversation around that of, here's what I think, you know, you can cut stuff here, you can add stuff here. And then if they're still interested, we talk about actually, like, me doing the implementation, doing the work. Um, but the idea is they have this nice little you know, PDF report deliverable they can take. And for the most recent client, they took it and went two levels above them or whatever and basically got sign-off for the entire project from them. So it's worked really good. Um, it does take a lot more work, which is why I actually charge for it. Um, I want them to understand that they're getting a lot of value out of this document, a lot of value out of my time. Um, and so it also starts them off like they're actually a client by the time I actually start doing their main work. And then... But the smaller ones, or there's some where it's a lot more kind of agile, where we're figured out as we go. I just use a wiki, you know, using Chili Project or Redmine. We just have a wiki page for what we're working on, track the issues in there. I typically work in weeks, so, you know, during the week we'll figure out, like, here's the stuff we're going to work on. So that becomes basically in scope for the week. 
Um, very lightweight, very, you know, can change on the fly type idea. Nice. Do you have a template that you use for that product? Um, yeah, I do. Um, and I was actually going to say, if anyone wants to email me, um, I can send you. I don't know if it's on my sales page, but I have a sample where I've kind of, I think it was like a running database app or whatever, but I kind of went through it and so you could see what it actually looks like. The template wouldn't help anyone because it's just marked down and, you know, it gets changed and adapted a lot. But if anyone wants the sample, they could email me. I'll send it to you. Very nice. Do you have a template that you use for any of your proposals, Ruben? No, I mean, my proposals tend to be just an email message, a short email message where I say, um, you know, here's what I was doing. Here are the different parts that we've spoken about. Here's a rough estimate of what I think is involved. And then I email it to them. But I always say, look, then we're going to have to go into more detail. As the project happens, we're going to sit down. We're going to talk once a week. At least once a week, we're going to have, you know, red mind. And ideally, and this doesn't with all things, but I really try to push and say, look, we want to have this weekly phone meeting. We're going to go through what are your priorities, what needs to be done. And then I can say to you, X, Y, and Z might be really high priority. They're all going to be, as you said, complex and thus cost more. And so where are you right now in terms of, needing that feature versus having the money to pay for it. Uh, mm -hmm. I find that sort of conversation really, really, really helps. So what typically happens, I guess, is Redmine becomes our sort of document, except, you know, except for maybe the actual estimate of the cost part where we discuss that verbally. Yeah, that's also actually, for yeah. already built. I was going to say, for my in my Chili project and then some a client when I've done, we've actually added that costing stuff in there so they could say this is going to take two days at, we'll say, $1,000 a day. So it shows you know this feature is going to cost you know their in-client $2,000, which was actually pretty cool. It works for, for that group. I don't know if it worked for smaller companies. And a lot of that you could just do verbally, but it works you know to really see the dollar impact that this specific feature, specific request is going to have. Yeah, that makes sense. As, as far as templates go, I mean, I've just used a spreadsheet in the past, but I really like the idea of having a template and then going into some of the details that you talked about, Eric, with you know, the risks and the just spelling out a lot of the other things that people need to know about that don't necessarily translate neatly into features. So I'll probably yeah. wind up amending mine. <laughs> I mean, and I liked, I got actually some good compliments about the opportunity section, which is where, you know, the client, they have their problem. They're, some of them attempt to solve it, and that's why they come to you specifically. And you work through them and figure out, like, okay, what's the thing that's going to work to solve it? Um, but a lot of times you you and them are both constrained by budget. Like, okay, we want to solve this problem, but we want to keep it at a lower price just to, to get it to work first. Mm -hmm. So I actually use the opportunity section to kind of say, if we had unlimited time and budget and skills and all that, what could we do? And that's where stuff like, you know, machine learning might come in or, you know, high advanced algorithms or, you know, we're going right. to scale it out and have a, you know international uh, software organization, whatever, whatever. Um, and that stuff, it's like three or four sentences per opportunity, but it's enough to kind of put in their head like, hey, if you really want to take your business this direction, we can start doing that and um, start that discussion early rather than later on in the project. I like it. I really like it. I want a copy of your uh, yeah, that is really nice. template. Yeah, just email me. All right. Uh, the next question is, how much time do you spend with the client defining the scope of the work before you sign a contract? I'll take this one first. I typically spend more than I ought to. <laughs> And and by that I mean that, you know, they, they get out of it not to the exact degree that, you know, Eric's saying they get out of his discovery product, but in the end, you know, a lot of times I spend several hours getting a specification together and then, you know, and then they come back and they go, well, but you cost too much or this or that. And, you know, I've given them a bunch of value. And so um, I'm, I've been working on that to try and... Yeah, to, to figure out, okay, you know, if you're serious, then A, treat me like a technology expert and pay me for my expertise so that we can figure out what you need, and then you can pay me for my other expertise to build it. Yeah, I mean, I it's not in stone, but I, I budget about four hours for a sales conversation, and that could be, you know, multiple emails back and forth, me maybe researching, like, a big risky technology for them for 20 minutes, you know, my introduction call, which can be up to an hour, maybe a second call, but I budget about four hours for that. And if it's more than that, I tell them, like, look, you either need to get this road mapping product where they get maybe eight to 16 hours of me doing this, uh, you know, road mapping, digging into it, interviewing them. They either need to do that or they need to buy the first week and we start on a prototype and we explore and start making estimates based on what we find from that first week. I've spent so much time researching for clients that don't end up going anywhere that that's like a non-starter for me. Yeah, I mean, a uh, new client with them in the last month, I guess it was almost exactly a month ago. 
and I think we exchanged, and we had a few more phone calls, we met in person twice, probably two or three hours of meetings, just so I could sort of understand what they wanted. And part of it was also trust building, that they had been burned by a previous developer, they wanted someone to take over the code, and when I said to them, give me your three biggest priorities for moving forward for this, so they'll give you the biggest ROI, they seem to be unable to count to three, because they gave me like 30 things <laughs> that they wanted to do. I said, okay, you know, hold, hold your horses. Like, I really said, we've got to prioritize here, especially when you keep saying we've got limited budget and we won't be able to do everything at once. I said, look, just these 30 things, we're talking about three, four months of you can only pay for a week a month. That's fine, but you should realize how long it's going to take. But I do sort of keep everyone honest and, and open communication. And by the way, like we had in a meeting, me and my developer and a bunch of their people sort of kick off the project. And we found like this major, major security issue that I said, until we do with this thing first. And that's what we've been dealing with. We've been using that, that week this month. That we're not moving forward with the things they really want to do. On the other hand, I think they recognize that we are, you know, this sort of proves in it to like rack up hours, but we're improve their software and get done. So I actually find those intro meetings to be almost a statement if they're already sold on you. Yeah, I mean, you you got to be very careful because you can waste a lot of time on clients that don't have the budget or they don't, you know, they're not sold on you. And so it ends up being a waste. Um, but at the same time, like I've had some clients where if I didn't put the time, enough time in up front, they wouldn't have picked me. So it's like, right. you got to find your own balance. Um, I find, like I said, I find a little bit of time in email. I have templates to speed up my end of it, but maybe an hour of emailing, broken up, I don't know how much, and then maybe two one-hour calls, you know, a call to, you know, intro call to get acquainted with them, and then maybe a second call to, you know, if they have objections or to answer specifics. Um, that's kind of where I draw the line. And also depends on the project. I mean, if you're talking to someone from IBM or Intel or something like that, then, you know, you might go, you know, six hours, eight hours, you know, a bit higher just because you know they're an organization, they, they, they're going to have the money or whatever. But I think just be mindful of it. You know, if you can track how much time you spend um, in sales for each of the leads you have, and that might actually help out too. All right. The next question is: Do you have a timeline to review deliverables weekly or something else, or is it ad hoc based on when the work is finished? Ad hoc. I mean, if it's the end of the week and we're we're like wrapping up the project, then obviously they, I tell them if you don't review it by Friday, like I'm not going to be around to help you. But yeah, it's when I get it done. I I use all my PM systems and all that, so like they can see it right as it finishes, right as it gets on the staging servers. Um, so I have some clients like five minutes after I finish a feature there, and they're testing it and you know reporting back to me. And other ones where they don't care, they just sign off on it. And if there's a bug, they'll open it up a month down the line. Yeah, my experience. So ideally for me, if I'm working for a client on kind of a continuous basis, then I like getting weekly feedback. I have never had that work for me though. I'll send information over to the client. I'll tell them it's done. I'll tell them these features are ready for them to review. I'll tell them where to go to review it, how to review it, sometimes make a video for them. And I never hear anything back until they finally get around to looking at it a month or two down the line, and it's busted. So, Wow. Like Actually, I didn't mention it. I build in at least one, if not two, meetings a week to do kind of an overall review. I, and I we'll can't at least get my clients to go for those. Really? Huh. I mean, maybe, maybe we can talk later about how you're positioning it because my clients are like loving it and they they want to meet. So that's some of them, even when they're busy, that's the only thing they actually like set aside time for. So it might be in the positioning of how, yeah, could be. what the value for them to show up for that meeting. Yeah, when uh, this big client in the U.S., like we were having weekly meetings for about a year. Um, and we were doing heavy development and it was great. It was great for everyone. Yeah. And I think we really, everyone looked forward to it. But then the development became much more sparse, and so we stopped doing it. And so I think it sort of depends on how heavy the, the work is going. Um, right now I've got this new client where I've convinced them we need to have a weekly meeting and seem just on the phone, half an hour, where do things stand? And they seem very happy to do that. We did that the first time this week, so it's hard to say how that will continue. Yeah, usually my issue is getting them to commit to a regular time every week. And if I found that if I don't, get people to commit to a regular time every week and what happened every week. Mm -hmm. so, yeah, and I, you know, I've tried to explain, look, you know, I'd like to be able to sit down and show you what I've done and blah, 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 and I, I think I need to push again on uh, my current client. I, I don't remember exactly having to, trying to have this conversation, though I know I've at least mentioned that I'd like to meet with them regularly and asked them when, but I don't know if I said the word weekly or not. 
but I think I may go back to them and just see if we can line up a day every week that we talk. But yeah, it's it's really tricky, and I, I don't know what the answer is. A lot of my other clients, it's just like one guy that wants some app built, and it's like, well, I'm busy, and I just don't know, and I can't commit to a, a specific time every week. And I, I don't know what I don't know what you do at that point, other than just pester them every week and say, so when can we meet? When can we meet? When can we meet? But I don't want to be an obnoxious contractor either. Yeah, I think one thing that might help, and this is just from what you said, you might be telling clients differently, but take it away from showing you what I've done and more to what can you, so you client can give me feedback and we can reprioritize and readjust. You know, because showing you what what you the developer has done is not really that valuable. It's like, oh, okay, I could have done this myself. But giving the client an open forum to ask questions okay. or if they have like new feature requests, like that's. One of my clients, they, they're pretty good about it, but I have another one where they're not very good about feature requests other than emailing me about it. And so I say, hey, let's let's hold off on this. Let's talk about it on Friday or Monday. And then at that time, I'll work through it, figure out the options with them. And so it's more of a collaboration meeting than a, like a, a demo of what, what happened. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that makes well, sense. I also use those meetings as sort of like a way to talk about the future of the business. So like, where did the business go this past week? Where is it going in the future? And... These are things that are really useful for me to know, both like personally, but also for the development. And so, and they're never otherwise going to tell me. So, so you know, they can say, well, you know, one of my clients, well, we're going to be expanding to a whole bunch of new markets. Oh, really? What's going to be necessary for that? Oh, well, funny that you mentioned that. We were thinking of doing X and Y and Z, and it it brings really does help with the development, but it also makes you seem like a much uh, more integral part of the business, and not just oh yeah, that developer is doing techie stuff. Yeah, that makes sense. And all of those things are things that I intend to bring up during those meetings, but I don't think I ever articulate that that's what I want to do during the meeting. So, I started making an agenda for the as silly as it sounded, like the three of us, because we were just getting together once a week. But I would say, here's what the agenda is, and the, it would start with here are the accomplishments we've had this past week. You know, what I think this is what we're planning to do next week. And then I would even say, you know, like you know, business. I, I don't remember. I would, I would couch it in some terms that would basically be. So tell me where we're going. Yeah, yeah, I've done agendas for just me and one other person. Um, it's it's useful, especially if they know about it, because during the week you can kind of slot it into there, like, oh, let's let's talk about this on Friday. Let me add it to the agenda. Um, that helps really good. Um, and I mean, yeah. one one of these reviews, I'm trying to think back. Basically, when I was talking to my client, uh, he announced that he's basically acquiring a whole other company. And so, like, we actually took that and like, oh, okay. Based on that, here's how your business is going to change. Maybe we could do some new stuff this next week to kind of make it easier for the acquisition to kind of you know meld in and mold in. And it was just an off comment that he made, but it's like, oh, that's actually a good thing. And it actually changed the direction for that next week and in the future. Very nice. Let's get on to the next question. It says, you guys have mentioned, at least in the early podcast, that you do about 20 to 30 hours of billable work per week. And you also have multiple simultaneous clients or contracts. I'm currently working a W-2 40-plus-hour-a-week job with a large product backlog that keeps me busy all week, so I'm struggling to visualize what a week in the life of a freelancer looks like. If you only work 20 to 30 hours per week and have a minimum of two clients, does that mean that you only dedicate 10 or so hours per client? So let's, to summarize, it's someone's working 40 hours or more, so full-time. They're taking some something we said where we do 20 to 30 hours of billable work, so they're uh -huh. trying to figure out how to work full-time and do 20, 30 hours of billable no, work. No, I think, I think they're trying to transition into full-time freelance. Yeah, but I'm just trying to like all their numbers. And I think yeah. I think there might be one big thing is I try to bill 30 plus or minus five hours a week, but I'm working full-time freelance. If you're doing yeah. part-time or moonlighting, you're not going to be able to bill that much. Yeah. But even like you know, full-time freelancing, the odds of billing 40 hours a week are pretty small. I mean, it's possible to do. So, like, frankly, my employee has been doing that for the last two weeks because we've got this big project going on. And I've been, I, I definitely work more than that because I'm doing training and I've still got some project stuff going on. But you can't sustain that for very long. It's just not, not reasonable for you or for your clients. And so part of setting up, like, a consulting business is, and part of setting up your billing is figuring out, okay, how can I work, you know, let's say, how, how can I work for clients 30, max 40 hours a week you'll still need time to manage business as well. Let's say they're five, ten hours per week. And then not totally crazy and not ignore family, friends, health, sleep, that sort of thing. You know, 
the stuff that I'm the poster child for ignoring for the last few months. Yeah, I think I've I've worked when they're asking about juggling more than one client um, at a time. Mm. I've worked it a couple of different ways. Um, so yeah, I generally work twenty to thirty hours or build about twenty hours a week, and then I spend a bunch of time doing the podcast every week. And yeah, I I kind of ebb and flow on the rest of everything else. So you know, my bookkeeping and my marketing and all of that stuff. I check my email pretty periodically, but that's just because that's one way that my clients keep in touch with me. But yeah, as far as splitting time between clients, um, usually I let my clients know that I'm working for other clients at the same time. And that way um, I can come to them and I can say, hey, my other client needs X or Y. You know, They need a little bit more attention this week, and so I'm going to give you a little bit more attention next week. And then I, I usually try and say, this is an opportunity for you to get maybe one of the bigger features done during that week because I'm going to be able to dedicate more time to your project and less time to the other project. I've also overbooked myself and had like two or three clients and didn't have enough time in the 20 hours per week. And that's been rough. And so, you know, what I wind up doing there is I try and spend as much time on the client that I think I can finish out work on quickest and then kind of go from there. So, you know, that way I can get the, the work done, kind of back burner it for a couple of weeks while I get caught up on everything for the other clients and then, you know, eventually one of the client one of the clients, one of the work will complete and I can, you know, then not be overloaded. But but yeah, so I, I usually don't say, Hey, you're gonna get ten hours a week and you're gonna get ten hours a week. I usually tell them I work twenty hours a week and you know, I tell them what I think I can get done that week and then I just work it out so that I get however much time it takes to get the work done that they want me to do that week, and then everybody's happy, and it doesn't matter if it's split evenly or not. Yeah, I mean, my my clients know that I work with multiple people any given week, and in, in fact, like when someone tries to, one of the things I've loved about using online calendar systems is if someone tries to schedule time with me, they'll see how busy I am, which I think is actually more positive than negative um, in terms of scarcity and seeming like you know, the guy they really want. Most of the time, it's not such a problem, but it means I have to prioritize, and sometimes I have to tell clients, look, I'm working on this other big project right now, and so it might take me a few days to get back to you on this, unless it's really urgent. Um, but I'm, I'm often sort of context switching between different clients, and I've also found, like, having had a bunch of employees over the years, some people are great at that, and some people are terrible at that. And I, I'm not sure, like, there might be a trade-off between context switching too easily and then not being able to get too deeply into it. But generally, my employees have almost always said to me, have me work on one project solidly. It helps me to concentrate, and I'll do a better job. And so I have them do that, and that actually works out well for everyone because that sort of is a counterpoint to me, uh, flittering all over the place. I think it's um, maybe 10%, but it might be like 1% of people are actually able to multitask effectively. The rest of them just pretend that they're doing it effectively. <laughs> um, and I, so, you know, what the question is asking, like, that's kind of the advice I was giving, you know, a while back, a couple of years ago or whatever. Right now, so what is, what is this? You know, Tuesday, April 28th, 2015, my stance is completely different than that now. If you're freelancing full-time, with a few exceptions, you should be billing daily or weekly. Uh, you should dedicate at least a day for a client. Don't do multiple client stuff in a day. Um, the exception is if there's literally like a server on fire type situation, then yeah, you know, help out the other person. Focused, sell your client on the fact that you're dedicating time to them. You're going to be able to get into it, dig in deep. You're not going to have to unload all the mental stuff to work on another client and switch back. Um, like I said, sell daily or weekly rates. If you're starting out, you could still do that, but you're going to be you know, up front with them and say, you know, this is a a part-time nights thing. I'm going to sell you my Saturday, which is eight hours, and then uh, we'll say Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, which is two-hour blocks. You know, work with one client exclusively either a week or a month. Um, if you're going to do multiple clients, which is probably good just as far as the, you know, getting fire type idea, you know, dedicate each week for a client. So you might have four or five different clients you can work with at a time. Each one gets their own week. You have a weekend to kind of cool off and to kind of, you know, reframe your head into the next project. Or you can do one client and basically do a week to week to week to week to week, which is what I do a lot of now. That's what I'd recommend. I I wouldn't get too hung up on having a minimum of two clients. I would 
I would always keep marketing, trying to find clients for later on when the current project is over with. But I would really watch the contact switching. I got really deep into that. I think I had at the most five, maybe six clients at once. And I was like scheduling them like, okay, in the morning I'm going to work for this person. Then I'll do an hour for this other person, then half an hour for them. I lost so much time contact switching and it felt like I was bean counting to try to hit my hourly, my hours for the week. And I delivered value, but it was nowhere near what I could have. Um, and looking back, I'm like, oh, I should have, I should have helped them out. I should have focused for the client. And I want to say three years ago or whatever, I actually did that. I'd said, okay, I'm still working hourly, but I'm dedicating these four days out of this week for your project. And then, you know, this other client gets one day and then two days this next week. Once I started doing that, I was like, wow, it's amazing how much more you get done for them, how much more value you deliver. Um, and it's a lot less stress on you to have to manage. Yeah, I mean, I, I really tell clients that I say, well, I'm still billing hourly because if talking about the daily billing, consistently when I say that to people in Israel at least, they say, oh, so your hourly rate is, and they do the division. Like, I, fine, but I, I say, look, uh, you know, so I'll bill, bill hourly, but I work on chunks of a day. Uh, or worst case, half a day, because I really want to do dedicated time to you. And then I say, so look, you know, find on calendar a day that's free, and I'll be happy to come in and work work for you. And they seem to respond very well to that. Um, the problem is that my time is sort of at a premium because I'm doing so much training, and uh, so I, I tend to hand it off then to my employee, which, which tends to work out well. But I agree, if, if you're trying to deal with five or six clients in one week, that's and, and certainly I can't imagine like saying two hours here, two hours there, chunking it certainly two a day is like the maximum I try to deal with. And if I can make it one a day, even better. Otherwise, yeah, even I go a little mm -hmm. crazy from that. Yeah, and I was going to yeah. say, the one exception I could say is if you're a writer or you're doing smaller projects, like say you're doing like WordPress like theme installs or tweaks, you know, where it's faster, I would say under four hours is your typical project length, then my advice isn't going to work that great for you. I mean, you, it'd be nice if you can get up to that sort of thing, but you're not. You're going to have a hard time selling someone a whole week if they only need four hours of work. Um, if that's yeah. the case, maybe what Riven said, where it's like you sell your AM to one client, your PM to another client, and do it that way. And give yourself time between them too. Like I definitely, again, tend to overschedule myself. And like just about two weeks ago or three weeks ago, I guess it was. Oh, with this new client, right? I finished training and I scheduled like a meeting with this new client like 45 minutes after doing that, and arrived there so. And so crazy. And yes, we had a like great meeting. They gave me a check for prepayment. All that was fantastic. But I, I definitely was not putting my best uh, foot forward in that situation. Yep. The next question is: What sorts of non-development tasks do you bill for that fill up some of the extra time? I don't like the idea of fill up time. Yeah. Um, I mean, I I do development. I'll I bill for development. I bill for project management because. Even clients that have a project manager, they need project management. Um, sometimes it's just like expert technical developer level stuff. I bill for email that's longer than 10 minutes or so. Like I basically bill for anything that I'm doing for them, their project, or their company that's delivering value. Um, that's basically my, my ethical criteria for it. If I'm doing something that's not delivering value, like I'm invoicing them. That's not really delivering them value. I don't bill for that. But if I'm on the phone with them or if I'm log into their server at night to fix a bug, that's delivering value. Yeah, this, this new client of mine, they're like, so you want to meet with us once a week on the phone? That's all right, like, and we're going to pay for five hours of your time each month plus like 40 of your employees. You're telling us that like we're going to have to pay for those meetings? I say, yes, like <laughs> that. that's part of the value of what I'm providing and you're paying for my time and my expertise and my ability to help improve your company. And so whether that's software development or server configuration or talking to you about the future, like, that's all important. So, to, uh, I mean, basically, yeah, any, anything that helps move business forward I think is totally legitimate to bill for. And I think I sometimes on some projects I'll break it down as to what I was doing. But I think that's pretty rare nowadays. Now to say, like, I mean, I'll say maybe what I was doing, but I won't do a category of development or project management or consulting or meeting. I'll just say, I did X. Mm -hmm. I don't even do that. I have a line item for project management and meetings. It's typically an issue in my Chili Project Tracker, and I just log time in there. And I'll put a comment in the time entry, but they don't see that on the invoice. Um, mm -hmm. one, one thing I don't bill for is if a client's talking about like the project they're working on, and then they get into more of a sales conversation about, like, we have another product coming up. 
I will, even if I can't get it exact to the minute, but I will basically stop billing because they're talking about lead sales stuff. That's, it might be helpful for them, but I don't, I don't feel comfortable billing for like sales conversations. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's fair. Yeah, I, I'm, I'm in the same boat. I mean, anything that's forward progress on the project gets billed. So if we're having a meeting, I do bill people for wasting my time. So if you schedule a call with me and I wait around for 20 minutes, you're going to get billed for 20 minutes. Oh, that's interesting. And do you, do you then put it as a line item, I was waiting for you? No, it usually goes under meetings or something. <laughs> and usually during that time, I'll fire up my text editor and go hunt some bugs or something, but, you know, after yeah. about five minutes. But so, so they're still getting value out of it. It's just they're going to pay for the five minutes I sat there before I was like, you know what, I may as well give them this time anyway. Yeah, I'll, I'll typically go and, you know, do some project management, like rearrange issues, stuff yeah. like that. But, you know, the, the thing is, is that 15 minutes I spend doing that is kind of low-value work because I'm kind of waiting on the cliff to get on the phone, and so, like, I can't dig into stuff. Right. Um, and that's that's one thing I'm loving about weekly billing is they're getting charged for the full week. So if they want to get on the phone with me or they want me to fix bugs or they're, you know, I'm waiting here on hold, it doesn't matter too much to me. Now, the next question something that I'm kind of interested in as well. It's how much development time per week do your clients expect you to dedicate to the project? This has bitten me a couple of times, and I don't know why they expect a specific number of hours. So I've delivered, but then they get mad at me because I only worked 10 hours one week instead of 15 or 20. You know, and I let them know in advance how many hours I think I'm going to be able to work in a week if it's something that's outside the norm. But for some reason certain clients have just not been okay with that. And so even though I'm delivering value, I'm getting them exactly what I told them I'd get them that week. This is usually in the team setting, so they have somebody else to compare me to. And so they see that uh, developer Joe is working 30 hours and Chuck's only working 10 or 15 or 20. And, uh, you know, that's just not quite what they want. And so they have this expectation of full-time even though up front we said that there was, you know, I couldn't do full-time and they said they were okay with that. It's the expectation. It's what their reality is. I mean, no yeah. matter what you do in your contract, if you tell someone you only work 20 hours this week, immediately, like microseconds, they're going to equate you worked part-time. Well, what, why didn't you do the other part? Like, if you did the other part-time, could you have, you know, done twice as much work? Why didn't uh -huh. you? Yeah, yeah, like it's it's kind of crazy, but that's like, you know, preconceived, not biases, but preconceived like ideas and thoughts of how work is done that you kind of have to work around. Yeah, I'm doing weekly billing right now, and I'm really enjoying that because I don't have a set number of hours as far as expectation goes. I told them that I would finish the project in 12 to 14 weeks, and that it would cost them a certain, a certain amount of money. And so as long as it's done on that time frame, they don't care how many hours I work. And so it's nice when basically the question is, okay, what did you deliver so we can look at it? And then they don't look at it. But what, what did you deliver so that I can show it off to you know my, my uh, higher-ups and things like that? That's the only thing they really care about. So they care about the results, which is kind of the place I like to be in. And then they pay me every week. Yeah, same here. I, uh, on Monday or sometimes the Friday before I commit to, here's the four or five things for a minute. I'm committing to doing... I might not get them done if stuff goes sideways or if we pull in other stuff that we decide is more important, but I'm committing to this, so by next week or end of this week, you'll know these are done, and that will move the project forward this amount. And if the clients push for it, I'd say it's basically 30 hours plus or minus five. If they have mm -hmm. a lot of like repetitive, boring, but easy to do stuff, it might be like 35 hours just because I'm burning through it. Um, but if it's something really hard, really draining, really difficult, or if they like change scope a lot and cause a lot of confusion, it might be on the lower end just because I don't have the energy to do it. Mm -hmm. And I'll explain to them that, you know, I'm more in the business of managing my energy than my time. You know, I'm mm -hmm. going to give you as much energy as I can. And if I run out of that energy, I'm not going to produce good work and it's going to actually make it cost us more in time later on. And so I'll watch myself. And if I get out of energy, then it's like time to start wrapping up. Um, and the big thing is when you commit, you don't overcommit. You not undercommit, but you commit to what you can confidently get done. And then you have communication with your client multiple times a week, so that they so there's no surprises at the end, I guess. Right. And I think back when I was doing hourly, when I was doing hourly, and it was like blocks per week. Like so, this client gets me for a week. I would say 25 to 30 of billable work, um, because that includes you know, off time breaks, business administration, all that stuff. And so I said 25 to 30, um, and that gives me enough of a buffer. If they want to crank it up like during a launch or whatever, we have some buffer there. Or if, you know, if 
there's not enough work, we can kind of scale it down and I can, you know, do some other stuff. Hmm. The next question is, have you ever had a client specify a maximum number of hours per week in your contract? Uh, just as far as budget. Like we have a budget cap of yeah. whatever, 10K, and at your rate, that is X hours. Yep. Same. Right, right. exactly. I mean, this, this new plan, they said they would love to, you know, have us on four weeks out of the month, but they don't have the budget for it, so they're going to cap it at one week per month. And, okay, that, that, that's what they've got, and that's what they've got. The next question, is the feedback loop so slow that you always have time for work on another contract while you're waiting? I can kind of tackle this one a little bit. I have a client right now that we just finished and delivered phase one, and they are still discussing what goes into phase two. So I actually went to my client and I said, look, I said, I need to know by the end of the week how long you are going to be working on specifying phase two and to what degree you need me involved so that I can plan, because if it's going to be a month, then I'm going to go find another contract, you know, to fill, and then he can come in after that other contract ends or, you know, pick up some of my subcontractors if they have some uh, cycles to spend on it. But, you know, I'm not going to sit around for a month. Now, if they're going to finish it up this week and I can get going on it next week, then I'll just work on other things. So it just it depends. But during the contract, the feedback loop, um, usually I have a big enough pile of work to where I can just pull something else off the stack and there's never any lapse where I'm like, oh, I wish I had something else to fill in this time. Other than like you were talking about like different phases of the project or where there's, you know, you have to go back to a scoping session, like that I'll break it up. And I typically tell the client like, you're not, you're not ready. It doesn't look like you're ready. So we're going to go off contract for three or four weeks while you figure out what you're going to do. And I'm going to work with other people. Um, let me know, give me a bit of heads up so we can get you back into my schedule. But as far as like work-wise, like I can't think of really any instances where the feedback loop was so bad that it, I jumped to another project. A big thing for me is communication, so getting feedback and all that is, you know, I make sure it's rapid. And I kind of, I operate by the idea of I will make the best decision I can think of for my client, so I'll operate in their best interest. And if I have to, I'll make a decision that I think is best. And then if we find out later based on feedback that that's the wrong decision, we'll go back and change it. Mm -hmm. um, so that kind of that kind of gets you through like a lot of the little the little decisions that the client wants to decide on, but it's not really blocking or it's not really a big thing for the project. And I don't like I have very very little instances where I have to go back and rework stuff. And if I do, it's it's very tiny and it's like kind of critique stuff, not necessarily like oh you went the whole whole different direction. Um, but yeah, like no feedback loops are typically fast enough. I don't have I don't have a enough of a gap for me to jump to someone else. I mean, I think, I think I probably had projects where not the feedback loop wasn't that slow on a regular basis. Um, and I think what you guys said about between versions is totally right. And so sometimes I'll reach the end of a version with someone, I'll say, okay, like, what's the plan at this point? Are we going to move ahead now? Are we going to take a break for a few weeks or even a few months? But there have definitely been cases where I said, okay, what do you guys think? And they say, tell you what, we've got to evaluate it. We'll get back to you in a few days. Um, I have enough going on that that's okay. But to start a whole new project during that time seems a little extreme. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I'm thinking, like, there's, I think a couple instances where, like, the client's like, yeah, we need some time to review it. And I said, okay, and I go to a past client that I know kind of has a week of maintenance work they want, but they want it just whenever I have a chance. And so I tell my first client, like, hey, I'm going to go work with this other client for a week. They have a very limited scope. I'll be back in, you know, at, at dinner that week, and we can pick up the project we started on. And so I actually give them a deadline to work on stuff. Mm -hmm. Do your clients ever feel like you're not putting in enough time per week? And the other question is, how do you respond to that? So the answer to the first question is, yeah. And the second question is, I refer to past conversations and then usually wind up leave, losing the contract because <laughs> it, it just, there's no way around the way that they think about those those things. And usually once you've kind of gotten to that place, Unless you can put out, you know, here's a game plan for me to get more hours in, there's there's nothing you can do. And so if I can't promise them more hours or tell them how I'm going to find more time, you know, what what else I'm going to quit doing to, to do their stuff instead, I just, you know, there, there's just not a whole lot you can do to keep those contracts because they, they have an expectation and you're not meeting it. Even if you specified it up front, it, it doesn't matter. There are definitely some clients who 
even if you're only working for them, let's say it's 20 hours a week, tend to have, and even it's not specified to some such a degree, they think you're, you should be, they think they should be your only priority, and they're sort of offended when you have other people with whom you're working. So first of all, of course, weekly billing solves that problem straight out, because you are dedicated to just working with them, and has all those advantages. But the other thing is that, I mean, I've said to clients on occasion, well, first of all, I try to avoid at almost any cost mentioning other clients to my clients. Like, I might say busy, but to say, oh, yes, well, you know, the company XYZ, they're really big and you're really small, like, so I'm going to give them attention. Kiss of death. Do not say that. Right? Like, <laughs> you, 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 you want to make it clear that they're a priority. You also have to make it clear that you're in the business of servicing multiple people and not, you're not their employee. And it, it can be a bit of a fine line, but I think it's important to make that point to them, perhaps subtly, to make it. I do this, and I think it's fine. You can mention, you know, you already have commitments to other clients, but yeah, don't say like I have a commitment to a bigger or a better client. Like that's just right. wrong. <laughs> I've had it work out where I've said client A had an emergency, you know, their system went down or whatever, and my other yeah. clients are usually pretty understanding, and it also makes them feel better because then they realize, hey, if our system goes down, he's going to drop everything and come help us out too. So mm-hmm. absolutely. The, the one place where I have been mentioning other clients recently, and not by name, but uh, when I want to raise rates on people. So a very effective line I found is, you know, you are currently my lowest paying client. And that sort of puts enough shock into their system. Oh, oh we don't want to be those guys, right? Mm-hmm. We want to be your second least paying client. Yep. Yeah, or you tell them that you have a policy of dropping your lowest paying client every year, and um, I'm sorry, but you're that one right now. Do you want to bump the rates up, or maybe <laughs> when that review comes up? Oh, I can only imagine the faces. Oh, man. Priceless. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you don't do that. Like, is it nicer if you're going to actually do that? But Yeah, I don't work with losers. Bye. <laughs> Good news and bad news. Good news is you have a your budget. That is. All right. Well, do you want to get to picks? Yeah. All right. Go ahead, Eric. All right. So uh, I mentioned it earlier. Just I'll put it as a pick so people can find it. There's the post on Copy Hackers by Danny Margulis. The non-scuzzy and totally true story of how I earned six figures in 12 months by mastering the hidden Elance economy. Um, I've seen a couple of his posts kind of around this or different topics on blogs. So um, I think his his blog itself is freelance to win, and there's some good stuff on there. Like I said, I'm not doing it. I'm not following that, but that's kind of a – it was a different perspective shift for me, and it stuck with me over the past you know few months since I read it first. Very cool. I've got a couple of picks. First off, I'm going to pick MicroConf. Don't try and go next year because I need to get a ticket next year too. Those tickets <laughs> go really freaking fast, but uh... – it was it was a tremendous experience. It was just awesome. It's definitely on my list of conferences to uh, attend every year. I also read a few books while I was out and about. Uh, these are books that were recommended to me by none other than Eric Davis. Uh, one of them is called Mini Habits, and the other one is called Habit Stacking. And so I have put together my own little routine for the morning as kind of a habit stacking thing. And then um, I've got a couple of just mini habits that I'm working on. So just throughout the day, you know, I'm like, oh, okay, I'm going to do this. Yeah, and then, you know, uh, his point is is once you get past the threshold of doing one, like one push-up, then, you know, you're already in push-up position. You're already doing it, so you, know, you probably do a few more. And So there's that one, and, and there are a couple of others that I'm working on. So anyway, both of those were really good books about just thinking about how to do this kind of stuff. And then... Um, I'm going to pick another book that I've been reading lately. It's called How to Win Friends and Influence People by Dale Carnegie. And uh, I'm really enjoying that one as well. So, Yeah, as far as the habit stuff, I, I just put it on video. You might not have seen it or your audio only, but I have been reading one article out of Instapaper for the past 442 days streak. I've been writing at least 50 words for 442 days. I'm doing one push-up every day for, I'm trying to do the math, 441 days. It works. Even sometimes I start on January, I have a 114-day streak of, if you have problems with habits, I recommend uh, many habits very, very highly. How are you tracking that? It is called Habit List for iOS. It's a white background with kind of a, a green circle with a little infinity symbol in it. Uh, very, very inexpensive. I like it because uh, 
you can export your stuff really easy. I think it's a JSON file or whatever, um, and it can set reminders and all that. All right. Reuven, you got picks? No, my memory is drawing, or I'm lying to myself. I didn't really think of them before. So uh, I'll, I'll, I'll let you guys off the hook this week without any of my... Uh, oh, actually, wait, wait. No, I don't have a pick. There you go. Um, I remember I, uh, yet another podcast, which I can recommend. So I think I've mentioned several times in the past that I really enjoy the Slate Political Gab Fest. Just super fun political analysis people, for people who are into U.S. politics. And one of the people on there is this guy, John Dickerson, who was just appointed, actually, the new uh, moderator for Face the Nation. So for political nerds, that's, like, a big deal. In any event, he has this podcast he does now called Whistle Stop, which is short, like, 15, 20-minute stories from political campaigns in the past of, like, presidential in the U.S. He's a great storyteller, funny, interesting stuff, wild thing from uh, previous presidential campaigns, demonstrating that the venom that you think you see in modern politics is nothing compared to what they actually had before. So uh, if you're in politics, definitely worth uh, listening to it a bit. Very cool. All right, well, if you have freelancing questions, go to freelancersanswers.com and uh, sign up for the mailing list. But we should be sending out reminder emails uh, letting you know that we're going to be doing this and giving you a chance to reply with questions. So uh, by all means, uh, do that and let us know. And uh, I guess I guess that's all we got, so we'll wrap up. Thanks, everyone. This episode is sponsored by Mad Glory. You've been building software for a long time, and sometimes it gets a little overwhelming. Work piles up, hiring sucks, and it's hard to get projects out the door. Check out Mad Glory. They're a small shop with experience shipping big products. They're smart, dedicated, will augment your team, and work as hard as you do. Find them online at madglory.com or on Twitter at MadGlory. Hosting and bandwidth provided by the Blue Box Group. Check them out at bluebox.net. Bandwidth for this segment is provided by CashFly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with CashFly. Visit C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y.com to learn more. Would you like to join a conversation with the Freelancer Show panelists and their guests? Want to support the show? We have a form that allows you to join the conversation and support the show at the same time. Sign up at freelancershow.com slash forum. 